0: being there for the person when they need you is the most important thing. Welcome
1: to episode 53 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at age 16 and had two-step J-pouch surgery 10 years later. I'm the IBD expert at VeryWell.com and the person behind AboutIBD.com and the About IBD social media platforms. It's my mission to educate people living with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. My guest is Rebecca Kaplan. Rebecca's connection to IBD started through her husband, Dan, who was diagnosed with Crohn's disease a few short months after they met in college. She'll tell you the story. It's super cute. As time went on and they married and moved away from family, she found herself in the role of caregiver for Dan and was dissatisfied with the resources that were available to help her. So she created her own. As she became more involved in the IBD community, it led to other opportunities, including her current role at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Learn how Rebecca copes with her role as a caregiver and spouse and what she would go back and tell herself if she could. Rebecca, we've known each other for a few years now, but I don't know how you and Dan met. Can you take me through that story? I can. And it's
0: a very appropriate story for this podcast. So when Dan and I were in college, it was my junior year, his senior year, move-in day. And I was moving into my apartment with my parents and my best friend. It was my birthday. And this like weird skinny kid knocked on my door to ask for toilet paper because there was nobody else in the building. Uh, and my dad proceeded to refer to him as toilet paper boy for about six months. And toilet paper boy became my boyfriend and then was diagnosed with Crohn's too months later. And that's kind of how it all started.
1: So he was this weird skinny guy. At what point Did you all sort of think that he needed to seek some kind of diagnosis or or treatment? And how long had it been going on? How long had he been the skinny guy?
0: I think he'd been that way for years prior to me meeting him. But as a pretty typical guy and pretty typical college student, he just kind of brushed it off and figured it was no big deal and wasn't anything serious. Um, he finally went to see his primary care doctor, who funny enough, his name is Dr. Crohn, but not spelt the same way as the disease. His doctor said that he suspected that Dan had IBD, but when he was referred to a gastroenterologist, the doctor told him it was IBS. And Dan basically said, no, this is something else you need to do a colonoscopy. And then he had the colonoscopy done and they diagnosed him.
1: But how long had his symptoms been going on before that, do you think?
0: A couple of years He had been that way since I had met him, which was six months prior. Um, But I think he was probably not feeling top of his game for at least a year or two.
1: And what was that like for you going through this major diagnosis with a new boyfriend of just a couple of months?
0: Well, the interesting thing is our first date was the same week as my mom's first chemo. So we joke around that we've been married since we started dating because we basically went from my mom having cancer to Dan being diagnosed with Crohn's. So there was no real honeymoon period where there was nothing to worry about. I remember the day he had his colonoscopy, I went up to his parents' house afterwards. And I think I had only met his parents once or twice, and Dan wanted to take a bath to help get the rest of the air out. But had been under anesthesia so he couldn't be in the bathroom alone so it was either his mom would keep him company or I would so I sat in the bathroom chatting with him and his mom had like a nervous breakdown because there was a girl in the bathroom with him
1: meanwhile he's like recovering from the anesthetic and that's not I mean that's not exactly like a sexy time (laughs) oh yeah
0: no passing gas all those good things
1: You've been dealing with the Crohn's disease since the very beginning. I feel like that must affect almost every decision that you've had to make together during your whole relationship.
0: Yes and no. I mean, when we were still in college, I didn't really understand the disease or really understand what it meant to have a chronic illness because his care wasn't my responsibility. So I knew that, you know, he had stomach aches. I knew that he went to the bathroom a lot. I knew that he skipped class, but part of me was like, oh, he's just being a lazy college senior who doesn't want to go to his classes that are jokes at this point. It wasn't really until we got married and moved two and a half hours away from our family that it really kind of hit. And then everything started being based on his disease.
1: And was that shocking for you? And how did that affect you? It kind of sounds like it was a little bit of a sea change that maybe you weren't thinking about.
0: It was a learning curve, I would say. You know, I went from not really having to think about making plans to really having to think about how he's feeling, what he can handle doing, what happens if, you know, he gets sick and we need to cancel, things like that. And it happened that when we got married, he got very sick in a very short span of time. So really, I went from, you know, working full time to working full time and being a full time caregiver.
1: So what would you say was the worst period that the two of you have been through with his Crohn's
0: disease? just after we got married. So from about 2010 through the middle of 2011, um, he had seen a doctor in New York who didn't tell him he needed to be monitored regularly. So he went two or three years without seeing a doctor, without having a colonoscopy, basically just taking Asacol and 6MP and thinking it was normal to go to the bathroom 25 to 30 times a day. So when we moved up to Connecticut for after we got married, well, technically before we got married, but when we moved to Connecticut and he found the doctor he's seeing now, she did a colonoscopy and we didn't know he had a stricture or how bad it was. So when she pushed the scope through, she perforated him. Um, So he ended up, that was his first hospital stay. It was a fun five-day stay with an E. coli infection in his blood. And that's kind of when we realized how serious it was. And between then and the middle of 2011, he was then hospitalized a second time with a blockage and then a third time when he had surgery. And that was in like the span of six to eight months. Now, thankfully, since the surgery, we've had very little complications. I don't want to curse myself. We've had a kidney stone, which was a party. And then a couple of random ER trips that I don't think were IBD related, but nobody could figure it out. We think it was either like a bug or food poisoning or something like that, but Thankfully, since the surgery, he's been pretty managed and in remission.
1: Yeah, that's really good to hear.
0: I also think that
1: some of the jobs that you've had over the years have been on the stressful side, would you say? So how do you care for yourself at the same time that you're caring for him?
0: That's a really good question. I don't know that I necessarily did at the time, my way of caring for myself was focusing on somebody else. I have very bad anxiety and panic. And so, if I have too much time to sit around and think about things, that's when it gets worse. So, I found that like when he was in the hospital and I had a purpose of, you know, annoying the doctors and nurses to figure out what was going on, I felt better, which is very, very weird and definitely not something a lot of people would say. But I felt like I had a purpose and something I could do to be helping the situation. So, I felt less stressed. I remember when he had his surgery, we went for a follow-up to see his surgeon, and the surgeon commented on how like calm and composed I was, and then goes, and Dan, how's your mom doing? She was really stressed out. I took the compliment. I was like, I never knew I could be calm or composed, so awesome.
1: Do you find that later, when things are maybe not so... Serious, and they've calmed down. That you then take the time to process things, and maybe you aren't so calm.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. Now, anytime he doesn't feel well, I start freaking out. Full disclosure: part of it is because I have a phobia of vomiting, <laughs> so it does have to do with that at times. But other times, it's more of me, you know, worrying that his disease is coming back full force. He's no longer in remission. His medication isn't working anymore, um, and so. Because I haven't had to really be in the frame of mind of caring for someone who is seriously ill, with him being managed now, it's definitely harder to handle.
1: So you are a big part of the IBD community. Can you take me through when you first decided to go online, what that was like when you decided to seek support for yourself or support for Dan or for both of you, and what the IBD community has meant to you both over the years?
0: My mentality anytime something has happened in my life is to get involved with whatever cause is related to it. So when I was in high school, I had a friend commit suicide and I became involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. When my mom was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, I started doing the light the night walks with LLS. So when he got really sick, I signed us up for a take-steps walk. Didn't know anybody else with the disease, didn't really know what the walk was like. This is one of my favorite stories to tell his parents came up from New York. We did the walk up in Hartford. So his parents drove up from New York. His aunt, uncle, and cousins came up from Trumbull. All of his brothers came from New York. My parents came up from New Jersey and Dan went to a bachelor party. So we all did the walk and the patient didn't come. And that was really the first kind of step into the IBD community for me. Um, You know, Dan went to subsequent walks with me because I kind of forced him to at one point. I had gotten involved on the board for the Connecticut chapter, and I basically told him he was going to be the honored hero, and he had to speak at the walk and he was not so happy with me about it, but he did it he was a good sport about it, so I think I got a lot more involved in the i b d community than he did because I needed some way to relate and learn and find other people who understood what was happening because you know our parents weren't living with us, they didn't really know what the day to day was like or much about the diseases to begin with so when he had surgery in 2011 is right around when I started my blog, because when you go online to search for caregiving resources, you either find stuff for parents of kids or people who are caring for older adults, and there's nothing for the adult caregiver of adult patients. And so my goal was to try and find a community that could help me learn and figure out ways to best support my husband while also finding ways to support myself. And so that has kind of just grown from there. Did you find that for caregivers? I don't really know that it exists. You know, I didn't. There aren't a ton of us who are out there. And if they are out there, they don't talk about it. But what I did find was that relating to other patients who had been through things was just as supportive as finding other caregivers because they could help me understand better what Dan was going through and different things that I could do to be a supportive spouse. Working at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is anytime we talk about new programs, I'm always like, well, we need to make sure we're including the caregiver voice in this.
1: Yeah, I think it's a big blind spot. I'll admit to having that blind spot a little bit myself. I think it's easier to be on the patient side of things. I actually think it's more challenging to be the caregiver. And maybe it's just because of what I'm used to. Keeping all of that in mind, that there are challenges for caregivers and that you have not been satisfied with what you've found so far, What resources are available for caregivers and where would you direct people to go?
0: There really aren't any. And so what I tend to do is I offer myself up as a resource to a lot of caregivers. Um, The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation also does have an online support group for caregivers through their community site. So that's offered monthly as well. But beyond that, I just suggest they read through the various literature that's available about the diseases to get a better sense of what their loved one is dealing with. And then look for other caregivers online to try and connect with people who understand what they're going through.
1: It can really do a number on your mental health and your physical health to be caring for someone else. If you could go back and tell unmarried Rebecca a few things about life as a person married to a person with Crohn's disease, what would you tell her?
0: Be patient there are a lot of ups and downs with the disease and things are not going to be the same way forever. So you need to be patient and learning about what the disease means, learning about the various treatments and also learning about how your loved one copes. So being patient and dealing with the ups and downs is really important and finding ways to be supportive without overbearing, which I still struggle with because my mentality is to ask lots of questions and kind of try to be the person in control and definitely will drive him crazy when we're at doctor's appointments. And I'm asking things that he doesn't want me to ask, like, when should he get a colonoscopy? So finding that balance and also just being open and available, you know, being a caregiver and being the support for someone doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be doing something or saying something. Just being there for the person when they need you is the most important thing and being there in the capacity that they need you. So whether that's finding ways to cook meals that suit their dietary needs or making them laugh by doing stupid things or dealing with the insurance company because they don't have the energy to do it. It's finding the different ways that suit your loved one and their needs. Who cares for you when you need care? Well, that's something I struggle with on a more high-level related to my own mental health issues. So I would say my mental health professionals, my psychiatrist and my therapist, and also my husband. You know, it's an equal partnership. I care for him. He cares for me. I have plenty of my own issues, so it balances out. And, you know, I try to give myself self-love. I am not the greatest at doing it because I tend to be my own worst critic, but finding things that help me relax and... Decompress and take a step away from the situations, so whether that's going for a manicure, or getting a cheap massage or going and walking around the mall and window shopping for the 700th time and not buying anything, taking my dog to the dog park or to the beach, you know, just finding things that are separate from the caregiving persona is the best way that I've found to kind of detach and take care of myself. And then of course, you know, I do take medication to help with my anxiety. I do talk to my therapist. So I think seeking professional care when needed is just as important as finding the self care routine that works for you. Talk to me for
1: a few minutes about your blog.
0: Started in 2012. So it was about a year after Dan had surgery. Um, And I remember I had gone online during his whole E. coli infection blockage surgery, kind of looking for support, trying to understand what was happening, the different things they were talking about, various. Possible procedures, stuff like that, and learned a lot, but still felt like I wasn't getting what I needed in terms of both education and the support. So I started the blog in 2012 with the goal of providing support to caregivers. But of course, as you know, it's really hard to find the caregivers. Um, And so it turned into more of a general IBD support blog. And so I wrote about my own experience, I had guest writers, Um, I profiled people like Ali Bain, um, and just used it as kind of an outlet for my own stress and what we were going through. Um, and so I ran that from 2012 until I started working for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in 2015. And through the blog is how I connected with a ton of people like you, the more high-level patients who really have a grasp on the disease and are out there providing support to the community. And so while I don't have IBD myself, I would find myself calling myself a patient blogger because I kind of felt like I was ingrained in the community and felt like I was having an impact. How did you
1: position yourself then? Because you weren't a patient, there's not too many caregivers in this space. I feel like that may have been a little hard for people to understand your blog and the purpose of your blog.
0: So I positioned it originally as a caregiving blog. You know, I called it Caring for Crohn's in UC. So it was pretty obvious what I was trying to do. And the first year, I'd say I talked mostly about my caregiving experience, you know, about the evolution of myself as a caregiver, because not only was would I care for Dan, but I had been through caring for my mom having cancer. My dad had had a heart attack in college, so I had been there with that, you know, in the years that Dan and I've been together, I think three of our four parents have had cancer. My sister has had surgery. So kind of my persona as a caregiver in general came through for the first however long year. But then I found myself kind of not having things to talk about because Dan was stable. (laughs) So I started to just take the approach of trying to educate and provide information about more complex topics. So because I had worked for a senator during the Affordable Care Act debates, a lot of the different provisions that came out of that were being implemented throughout the time that I had my blog. So I would educate people about what it meant for pre-existing conditions, what it meant for kids up to the age of 26, things like that. So I started creating more—I call them primers—so that people could understand in layperson's terms what this meant for them, um, and then just general disease education. You know, I created a glossary of terms about IBD because there are a lot of big terms and acronyms thrown out, and not everybody knows what they mean. So creating a one-stop shop that people could go to to help them understand better and become more empowered and educated was my ultimate goal.
1: Was it challenging for you to click publish at times? What did that feel like?
0: Yes, not because of the content, but because, and I say this at work all the time when it comes to me fundraising for events and using Dan's story, I feel like I exploit his experience a lot. Um, And so for a while, he was not working and he was very sensitive about me posting personal information. So no last name. He didn't want pictures where you could see his face. So it would be hard to click publish when I couldn't really provide the personality or the details I necessarily wanted to, but not because I wasn't confident necessarily in the information I was providing or the perspective I was providing.
1: How is it different being a caregiver for your spouse, and being a caregiver for a parent?
0: I think because Dan and I kind of grew up together, it was a lot easier to be a caregiver for a spouse because we were both learning together at the same time. Whereas, you know, my parents have been around for decades longer than me. They have their own way of dealing with things. And so they may not necessarily be open to what I have to say. I remember... I love my dad. He's a lunatic, but he does not make the smartest decisions. And back in, I think it was 2014, he had to have a hemorrhoid removed. And he may kill me for telling this story. But in 2014, he had to have a hemorrhoid removed. And I was not working at the time. So I had the pleasure of taking him for his pre op visit and then keeping him company the day after the procedure. So we're at the pre op visit and he's, you know, doing whatever blood work they need him to do. He's not asking questions. Like, what is wrong with you? Why are you not asking questions to understand what's happening? So I start asking questions. I'm like, oh, is he going to have internal or external sutures? Does he need to be doing anything specific to keep the wound clean? And he just looks at me and he goes, who are you? And I'm like, dad, you're in my turf. Anything from like the chest to the hips is kind of the region that I'm familiar with. And so the day after his surgery, um, a lot of IBD patients will... Understand this, they wanted him to take sitz baths to help keep the area clean and promote healing. And all I remember is sitting in the bedroom with him with the contraption, trying to read the instructions and explain it to him and be like, Dad, you have to put this on top of the toilet. You have a bag that hangs, it puts water in. And he looks at me, he's like, I'm not doing this. I'm going to go take a regular bath. So I was like, Fine. You're an adult. You are not my spouse. I cannot force you to do this because I'm not going in the bathroom with you but if you don't heal properly, I told you so. And it's things like that. Like my mom went for a colonoscopy and of course my dad didn't ask any questions. So I was getting information from her and whatever she was told while quasi under anesthesia. And half of what she told me made no sense. And now when I tell her about it, she claims she didn't say it to me. But at one point she told me that The doctor had trouble getting the scope to go in because her intestines were twisted. And I was like, mom, if your intestines are twisted. That's emergency surgery. And now she's like, I didn't say that. So I told her that next time either of them have to have a procedure done, I'm going so that I can actually ask questions and relay the information properly.
1: All right. That's a big thing getting the information secondhand. Do you normally go with Dan to his doctor's appointments that you can sort of get that information firsthand? That's something that I struggle with.
0: So from 2009, when we got married, basically through 2013, we moved back to New York. I went to every doctor's appointment, every MRI, colonoscopy, everything. It helped that at the time the original job I had out of college, the senator had written Family Medical Leave Act, so they let me just do what I needed to do, no questions asked. Um, and then the second job I had was down the street from his doctor, so literally two blocks, so I would just meet him there. When we moved back to New York, it was harder because his doctor was over an hour away, and I worked in the city. So for about a year, I didn't, and then I was Between jobs for a year. So I went back to going with him. And now I'll try because he's only seeing his doctor twice a year. So I try to go with him for those appointments. And of course, I take him for his colonoscopy. But for example, I used to go to every infusion with him. I can't anymore. But we have a very different relationship with his GI, given that he perforated with her like the second time we saw her. So we've been very close for years. And I can email her questions when he doesn't ask them what I want him to ask. For example, Um, I wanted him to ask if he should have his measles titers checked because we live near a measles outbreak. Now, patients can't get the measles um, booster because it's a live vaccine, but it was more for my own curiosity. He didn't ask her, so I emailed her and asked, and she sent a script over. When I have questions that don't get answered, I have a way of finding out.
1: How does Dan feel about that?
0: I think it depends. You know... The one time I texted her, he was having really severe nausea the morning he was supposed to be going for an infusion for his medication. So we weren't sure if he should go or not because, you know, he doesn't typically have nausea that bad. So it was like 6.45 in the morning. He was supposed to be leaving in an hour to go. So I texted her and she called us back immediately. And I think that was really helpful. I think a lot of the times I probably annoy him with my questions, but I'm someone who wants to know everything. So I'm going to ask all of the questions. And I think, you know, if I were in his position, he would probably end up doing the same for me.
1: But here's my thing. If you weren't asking these questions, they wouldn't then get answered.
0: Right. So maybe your control issues serve a purpose. (laughs) I think they definitely did when he was at his sickest because it was important for us to understand what he could and couldn't do, given that he had a really severe stricture and we needed to make sure he wasn't having blockages every other day. But I think at this point, you know, where he's stable and in remission, it's probably more annoying than anything. I own it. I'm an annoying spouse. I think that's my job.
1: It would be sort of a comfort to me, I think, to have that sort of in my back pocket. If there's ever anything that I don't want to discuss or I don't want to deal with, I would just ask you to deal with it.
0: I'm really good at that. The year that I was between jobs, I swear I spent half the time visiting friends in the hospital and, like, annoying doctors for them. So I always joke around that, like, my job could literally be the professional caregiver who goes and just asks all of the questions and annoys all the medical professionals.
1: My husband is very good at that, too. I could have taken lessons from him on how to get things done uh, when I was going through my surgeries because, like, he got stuff done and he got people to do what he wanted.
0: (laughs) Not this past November. The November prior was one of the weird either food poisoning or a bug or something. We were on our way home from a wedding in in Washington, D.C., and he ended up in the ER there. And we kept telling them he has Crohn's disease. He gets dehydrated easily. He needs at least, you know, four or five bags of fluids. The doctor in the ER only called in an order for three. And so I had to keep hounding the nurse's desk to say, I know the doctor called an order for three, but I also know my husband and his disease and he's not going to feel better until he gets more fluids. And because of their delay, he ended up having to stay overnight for, um, to keep an eye on him because they delayed giving him more fluids for hours. And so he continued to feel like garbage. They should just listen to you. Everybody should just listen to me. That's the bottom line.
1: So tell me about how you got started with the foundation. What's your role there? And if there's anything that you can tell me about what's coming up next.
0: Sure. So I started as a volunteer in 2010 um, and kind of rose through the various programs. So I've been a WALK participant. Dan and I have both done team challenge events. I think we've done four combined between us. I've done spin for Crohn's and colitis cures, although I've not actually sat on the bike. I've fundraised for it. And then back in 2015, I was hired by the foundation as their, at the time it was called integrated media specialist, which was their way of talking about social media and PR. Um, and so my job over the last four years has been to be the face of the foundation on social media and providing the resources and support to our social communities. And then I also work on external communications as well as relationship management for celebrities, influencers, high-level patients, docs, etc. That's kind of a simplified description of what I do. But really, if you see something written about the foundation, I've probably had some sort of hand in it, which is kind of cool. And, you know, I feel really lucky to work in a job where I'm not only having an impact on the lives of millions of patients, but a direct impact on the life of a loved one. Um, In terms of things that are coming up, well, we always have events happening, uh, and if you are in a community and you're interested in getting involved, you can always visit our website to see what is happening in your local area. Uh, October 5th is Ostomy Awareness Day, and we've got some things in the works, partnering with United Ostomy Associations of America on some social chats and fun things like that. And then, of course, fast forward to December, we've got Crohn's and Colitis Awareness Week, the other thing I will plug, since this is coming out after this is announced, is we have a new partnership with Popsockets, which are those handy grips on your phone. And so we're going to have some fun designs coming out with celebrities, starting with Mike McCready. So if you need a grip for your phone, which are these handy dandy things, um, I encourage you to buy one. Links will be on our website and on social. Uh, so that's generally what we've got coming up. But I feel like there's always new and interesting things coming out of our research, new education programs new fundraising events. Yeah, it's an exciting place to work. I feel like there's constantly things changing and new discoveries being made.
1: That's very true. There are always new events coming out and new things happening. And not to mention that social media itself keeps changing, which must keep you on your toes.
0: No matter how hard I try to follow, I feel like I change one thing. Seven other things need to be changed. But The one constant is you can always find us doing Facebook chats, Twitter chats, providing educational resources, sharing patient stories, et cetera. So if you're looking for a one-stop shop for all of that, I encourage you to follow the foundation on social media.
1: Can you remind me of the handles? Because I always get confused as to what the handles for the foundation are.
0: So Facebook is, if you're looking for the shortened URL, it's ccfafb. Twitter is Crohn's Colitis FN and Instagram is Crohn's Colitis Foundation, all spelled out.
1: You know, one great thing that's going to come out of my doing this interview with you is that I'm going to write those down and I'm going to have them in one place because every time I go to tag the foundation, I go through this thing where I can't remember what it is. And then I'm finding some of the chapters and I don't necessarily want one of the chapters. I want the the national and This is good for me. Thank you, Rebecca, for all of the work that you've done over the years, for being so accessible to patients, and for speaking to me about caregiving. I really hope that we can continue to elevate this conversation and make sure that caregivers give the support that they need and that they deserve.
0: Well, thank you, Amber, for having me on. I'm excited that we got to do this. And if there are other caregivers out there looking for support, you can always reach out to the foundation. If you send a message to any of our social channels, it comes to me. So I will be the one responding to you. Uh, And I hope that we are able to elevate this because I think there's a lot more that needs to be done to support all caregivers who are caring for loved ones, not only with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, but with chronic illness in general.
1: All right. Thanks, Rebecca.
0: Thank you. Hey,
1: super listener. Thank you to Rebecca Kaplan for taking the time to talk with me on the day before her birthday when she had a few other things that she could have been doing. You might not know everything she has done for the IBD community in her role at the foundation because it's largely taking place behind the scenes, but it is monumental. Please follow the foundation on social media. I've put the links in the show notes, as well as some more information about other topics we discussed, which you can also find on the episode 53 page on my website at about IBD.com. After you follow the foundation, you can find me as About IBD on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you're looking for disease information, please head to verywell.com and use this search box to find topics about IBD. Thanks for listening. And if you're in the mood to tap out a review on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate it. And remember, until next time, I want you to know more about IBD coming up on the next
0: About IBD. I said, there's something I need to tell you, like don't panic, this is what's happening. And she walked in, saw the toilet, started crying, and could see how like my bones were poking at my skin, and like my entire spine. You could see like every bit of it.